Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Rollins Around Town. I'm Sam Stark. I serve as Vice President of Communications and External Relations here at Rollins College. Rollins Around Town is a showcase of outstanding people who make dynamic and important contributions to the Rollins campus and throughout Central Florida. In both cases, these are difference makers who help uplift the mission and brand of Rollins and who help make our region a special place to live, learn, and work. Today, I am delighted to welcome State Representative Ana Escamani. Representative Escamani won her seat in 2018 and easily won re-election again in 2020. She made history in Florida as the first Iranian-American elected to any public office. She was born and raised here in Orlando and currently is pursuing her PhD in public affairs at UCF. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, and Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much, Sam, and Happy New Year to you as well. So I shared sort of the, a very brief and condensed version of your amazing you know, <laughs> journey to the, the Florida legislature, but tell us a bit more about you. Kind of give us your backstory and you know, maybe how you got to where you are today. I would love to, and it definitely is a journey. <laughs> uh, well, we don't know the destination. <laughs> Um, but as you mentioned, I was born and raised in Orlando, so I'm the daughter of working class immigrants. My parents actually came from two different parts of Iran, but met in Orlando, oh working at the same donut shop. Oh my god! And so my my mom recognized my dad's accent, and that's how they started speaking Persian and made Orlando their home. So I have an older brother and a twin sister, and my parents worked multiple jobs to make ends meet, and so I, I really do. Um, you know, have a special foundation as just growing up with struggle, but also being so blessed to have an incredible, an incredibly loving family around me. So we didn't have a lot of resources. We had a whole lot of love. And education was very important to my family. I went to elementary school, uh, to high school here in Orange County, all public schools, and then uh, eventually went to UCF. But I, I think what is most uh, transformational in my life was actually navigating my mom's health crisis. My mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was a kid, and she passed away when I was about 13 years old, actually. It'll be 18 years this month that she passed away. So I've been alive longer without a mother than with a mother, and I, I think for anyone who's experienced loss, especially during this pandemic, um, it's just such an important reminder to honor those who are no longer with you through action. Right. And that's exactly what, what I did. Uh, for my first days in high school, being involved as a high school Thespian. I'm actually um, a techie in my roots, and so I, I love the arts and culture. But was very backstage all through high school doing uh, doing performing arts, and then um, when I got to UCF, pursuing political science and women's studies, and starting my master's. And as I began my PhD, all that time I was working full time in the nonprofit sector, and then eventually uh, made that decision to run for office as a first time candidate. I love it. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. What do you remember? What your impression of Rollins College was? Oh when you my god! Junior or senior in high school? <laughs> like what was? Yeah, it? actually, funny enough, and I don't tell this story a lot, mm. but I toured Rollins College because I was considering doing theater. Yes. And so, Mr. Jurgens, who was my technical director at University High School, his dad has John Jurgens. He was one of my professors when I was no here. way. Absolutely. Okay, so so <laughs> so Mr. Jurgens is a huge you know, lover and supporter of Rollins. Yeah. And actually, we would come to to the Annie Russell Theater not just for productions, but to borrow props and set pieces. Right. I remember oh touring the Rollins College uh, prop room, which for me as a techie was like very cool. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I actually almost, and I have so many friends that went to Rollins, especially for theater. 
So I've always just had so much love and admiration for Rollins. And I have to tell you, when I um, you know, went to UCF and uh, when I graduated, one of my goals was to also help build the connection between Rollins and UCF. And I think today we're, we're seeing that really blossom of a, of, a, of a deeper partnership with Valencia as well, because we are sure. part of this ecosystem together. And so we each, we each, we don't have to compete. We each play a really special role that makes, that makes Central Florida not only impactful, but really uh, unique and attractive to new students. Yeah. And so anyways, as I um, made the decision around for office, I have to tell you, I was really excited that Rollins was in the district. Uh, <laughs> Because the fact that we actually have a student body here that we can work with, that we can help become more politically engaged, is very special for any elected official. Not every uh, state house rep has a higher ed institution in their district. So I, I feel very blessed that I, that I have that. Right. You kind of came out of the blue, I mean, to some degree <laughs> in 2018. I mean, you know, um, but, but how did that how did that come about maybe a little more specifically when you decided yeah. to, run, to go against an incumbent, to go against a person from a, your opposite party who, at least by the statistics, <laughs> his party was a little bit more um, out, outnumbered your party. Right. And well-resourced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. A lot of folks, you know, have asked the same thing, saying you, you kind of came out of nowhere. But then I remind, my, I remind myself that, sure, I didn't, I didn't come from a line of political people, right? And I don't come from wealth. And I, I definitely um, I never thought I would run for office before. That wasn't part of my life plan. I figured, especially studying political science, I was actually focused on international relations. So I thought maybe I'd go into, you know, some sort of uh, international work and humanitarian work. But, but for something like public service, it finds you. Right. And I've always been someone who was service-driven. And so when I made the decision to run for office, it was, it was, it was tough because for many women, our motivation to run for office is not grounded in a, a, a job title. It's grounded in where can we be the most impactful. Right. And I was 27 years old. I made the decision. And there's a lot that 27-year-olds are navigating. And so I was in the process of saving for a house, you know, trying to be yeah. an adult. And then 2016 happened. And that was really my catalyst to say we need more women and more everyday people in office, so that there's not so much of a disconnect between who represents you and what your needs are. Right. So that was a, my foundation, but I, I will tell you it was tough, you know, kind of being seen as that new kid on the block, even though for the last 10 years of my life, ever since I was a UCF student, I was in service, I was volunteering, I was in leadership positions, I continued my academics, I already had two masters by the time I was running for office. Um, so. To some degree, I really was the perfect example of building a bench, but I also think that so many folks are used to their politicians having a different background right. um, yeah, that sure. I wasn't even seen as viable to some. Yeah. And so the fact that we were surrounded by so much love and support and we just worked our butts off you know, <laughs> to prove ourselves to others and we earned their trust and we earned it again, my hope, too, is that it does inspire more everyday people to realize they have viability. They can also run for office and, and uh, carry this torch forward. Do you, from 2018, your first election, you're running again, right, every two years. Yes. What's been the impact of the college student oh, in your yeah. campaign? And, and do you see Rollins students engaging or just maybe more I in do. general? Actually, it's funny you bring up this question, Sam. I was just thinking one of our uh, Bonner students, Sunny, um, Sunny is a, is a fellow Iranian-American, and I met her at our K-12 
kickoff press conference back in 2017 because we launched our campaign in July of 2017. And she was not politically engaged at the time, but became one of our interns. And since then, uh, graduated from Rollins. She's now pursuing law school. And she is, she's returned during this gap year she has to be an organizing fellow with my voter registration initiative. And so there's moments like that where you just have so much pride. Yeah. And we, 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 we call it the Honorverse, jokingly, because it really has become this incredible network of, of folks of every generation, but especially young people who for the first time ever are, are tapping into whether it's a campaign, whether it's a legislative office, whether it's, it's our voter registration work, and are learning new skills, perfecting their public speaking, perfecting their problem-solving, critical thinking, and they're finding employment yeah. in government. I'm so proud to say that right now, going to this legislative session, six of our former interns are now legislative staffers in the Florida House. Wow. It's incredible. Representative Joy Goff Marcel's office is entirely Timana now, <laughs> Timana alum. Love it. Uh, Representative Brown, Representative Ben Diamond, uh, uh, Dottie, Representative Dottie Joseph. So it's not just even Central Florida reps. Yeah. It's reps from Tampa, South Florida, and, of course, our team, too. I mean, it's, it's incredible to see that pipeline that we're building. And Rollins students are a very big part of it. I've had the honor of working with so many Rollins students. Actually, right now, two Rollins students um, – are campaign interns for us, and they're also involved with the College Democrats chapter here. So we're we're very blessed to have this incredible network of young people, and they bring what they learn with them everywhere. Yeah. And it helps with civic engagement. It helps with collective efficacy, and it's going to make our our country better. You yeah. know, when you have young people um, who are ready to take the helm early on in their professional and personal lives. Love that. So you know, a little bit unlike the, the state universities, Rollins and other private colleges and universities in Florida aren't overly dependent on state funding. Um, but, but there is one exception, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Effective access to student education or ease grants are critically important to Rollins and to over 40,000 families in Florida who have children attending you know, private colleges and, and universities within the state. And so this is an access grant of, I think it's about $2,800 per year per yep. student. Uh, who can use that to to help you know pay pay for their education here in Florida? You've been a super strong supporter of that, and we we, we can't thank you enough. Um, why why is it important to you? How, how can the the institutions help sort of solidify these funds? We, we totally. kind of talked a little bit at the beginning where sometimes it's a political hot potato, and we don't know if we're going to get it. We don't know if it's going to be reduced. Right. It's it's real money. It's serious money, not only for the institutions, but for Florida families. So, hundred percent. Talk a little bit about your perspective on ease grants, if you would. I would love to. Well, first of all, I never would have been able to go to UCF if it, if it wasn't for bright futures. Right. And so, I, I think it's really important that we not balance the state budget on the back of students and their families. At the end of the day, having a higher educational experience has become a requirement for many many fields, or even an undergraduate degree isn't enough. That students have to go to that next level, which typically will be out of pocket or if they're, if they're able to find fellowships or TAs. But in most cases, that undergraduate degree is just foundational to our talent pipelines, foundational to that young person changing their economic status and supporting their families. And the EASE grant, it might seem small to some lawmakers, but that is transformational uh, for students who are stepping out of their uh, uh, neighborhoods for the first time to go to a higher ed institution. And so we made that point on the House floor that you can't just 
pull the rug out from under students. You have to realize that this is a, a, an investment in our future as a state. And remember, these programs, they're supposed to also incentivize top talent to stay in Florida. Right. You know, if a student is accepted to Rollins College, that is going to be a profoundly gifted student. And we don't want economics to be a barrier for that. And I think folks have a misconception about private colleges. For sure. And you come to Rollins College, I mean, it is diverse. There are folks who speak different languages, you know, walking around campus. Um, I have attended events that are focused on a cultural perspective or focused on an advocacy issue that ties into equity. And so you want that on your college campus. I mean, it adds to the greater body of knowledge, but it also adds to the connectivity we're all trying to strive for, which employers want to see. You know, all this debate around, you know, talking about race and equity, it's so frustrating for me because obviously it's become very political, but at the end of the day, we're working in a global marketplace and you have to embrace that to be successful. And so many employers not only see the benefit of diversity, but they, they want to become more diverse because they know it adds to the greater impact of their team. It adds to the idea generation. It adds to their able to deliver services to folks of different backgrounds. And so Rollins College is a perfect example of where that is happening. We're building that pipeline where we integrate arts and culture into the STEM, into the different hard sciences and we create spaces for for critical thinking and you don't want to lose that and so I I think what frustrates me a lot about different programs in general is that no one is measuring the value of that investment they look at the dollar sign and just say well that's a dollar sign we have to get rid of it but they're not measuring the the ROI and for something like ease there's, there's huge ROI keeping students local and allowing for there to be better access to these phenomenal private colleges. And candidly, we give out so many tax breaks to corporations in Florida. And I, I don't, you know, I won't go into it right now. It's very early in the day to talk about taxes, but I make the point all the time of, listen, if you want to balance the budget, close these corporate tax loopholes and don't take away these, this funding from students and their families. So play political consultant. I'm going to Tallahassee next week with (laughs) uh, a couple meetings with our independent colleges, University of Florida, our Hispanic chamber, the Florida chamber foundation board. How do we make a better case yeah. to solidify the funding and to stop letting it become a political hot potato? So this is where personal storytelling is very impactful. And for anyone who remembers uh, legislative session last year, the fight over Bright Futures, it was students that stopped Bright Futures from being dramatically defunded and changed. They were going to change Bright Futures to basically narrow down its eligibility and to not allow every type of student to qualify. And it was students coming out to Tallahassee testifying during the pandemic that created such a public outcry that the, that the state Senate pulled back from that effort. And unfortunately, the book stipend was still removed from Bright Futures, but that was a much smaller uh, change compared yeah, to what yeah. they were debating. So I, I really think it's important for any advocates to bring those stories with you. You know, if students can't travel for different reasons, um, have profiles, you know, of students that have benefited from the East program, and and tell that story to lawmakers. Because again, I, I think the challenge we face is the the economic uh, differentiation uh, between lawmakers is huge. And I'll tell you that we do a financial disclosure when we um, approach the the legislative process. Yeah. And so I I upload my taxes. I send everything for public access, and my value, my net worth is usually around like. 
$17,000. Like, I'm not a rich person. And most of that's my retirement account. Other members are in, they're millionaires. I mean, they're millionaires. And so it just speaks to the fact that there's a disconnect between why you would care about this program, right? Because for some of these lawmakers, they don't have to, their kids will never have to apply for this type of program. They never had to apply for this type of program. So for those of us who've gone through that process of FAFSA and Bright Futures and Ease and so forth, I think you have to draw the connections between those personal stories and then again, speak to the ROI. For every dollar you give into ease, what do you get out of it? And that's the conversation we've been able to have to increase arts and culture funding in the state of Florida, which under the Rick Scott administration was dramatically cut. And it was when I came into Tallahassee, it was around $2 million arts and culture funding for 600 plus grants around the state to the point where many nonprofits didn't even apply for these grants because it wasn't worth it. The cost benefit to get a $100 grant for all the paperwork just didn't make sense for them. But since then, we've increased it to $21 million. And we did that across the aisle. Myself and Representative Carlos Smith, we were the two biggest advocates for it. So we did that talking to the Republican leadership, talking to the chairs of these budget committees. And we were effective in getting this in the budget and the governor also signing the budget, accepting that that increase. And so it does, advocacy does work. Personal stories are impactful. And then share that ROI to really get the point across. Love that. Well, we're doing a little bit of that. I know we can always do better, um, but we have a student ambassador who's, who's one of whatever it is, 35 of the, you know, of the other 35 independent That's awesome. college universities who, who do a lot. And we've begun to communicate directly with our students who receive like yes, these grants. That's really important. It's time, and here's, here's a handful of people that you could maybe send an email to or post on their social media. And That's awesome. We've gotten it. So activate your students indeed. and activate their parents. That's such a good idea. So, talked a little bit about education and, and taxes. What, what, what are some of your legislative priorities coming into this session, which does begin in the next Oh, my gosh. Just a few days. <laughs> <laughs> so those are two of my most important buckets, absolutely. Yeah. I think the, others, the other issues that we're concerned about is affordable housing. Yeah. Rent is skyrocketing across the state, especially in Central Florida. And I'm a renter as well, so I, I feel that pain. Sometimes the rent increases are also tied to property insurance rates going up, and that impacts homeowners, then landlords are going to pass that cost down to tenants. So we have a major crisis on affordability. Homelessness in our community has gone back up. Yep. You know, during the eviction moratorium, um, it actually saw a decline because less people were losing their homes. But now in Central Florida and other parts around the country, homelessness is peaking once more, and uh, the resources are so limited when it comes to providing these folks with a pathway to sustainable and permanent housing. So. Um, that those are those are areas that we're very much concerned about. We also prioritize environmental issues, yep. um, holding polluters accountable. You know, just last year we had the Piney Point Distance Stack almost spill and flood uh, phosphate water, you know, into a community. Um, and, of course, that water ended up being pumped into Tampa Bay. And so we're already seeing the first algae blooms this year. In 2022, manatees are dying at huge rates. And even gopher tortoises, who are already, you know, a species of concern, but gopher tortoises have to be relocated with development, and there's no place to put them because so much land is being developed compared to where these tortoises can be relocated to. And then, of course, on top of all of that is climate change, which the state of Florida has not been proactive in tackling. There's been a lot of conversations on re- resiliency, but not so much on actually weaning ourselves off fossil fuels and going to this session 
there's a major attack on rooftop solar being led by utility companies. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a big issue for us too. And then the last one I'll just elevate is around public health and mental health and criminal legal system reform. You know, I visit prisons across Florida. As a state lawmaker, I can do that unannounced. And you really do see just the disparities on people who have mental issues that end up incarcerated, that if there was some early intervention, we could really prevent that from happening, which saves the state money, but of course helps that person be whole and their family be whole. So continuously looking at ways to invest in mental health. The Agency for Persons with Disabilities has a wait list of 22,000 people. And some of these folks die while waiting for disability services. And so those are all the, the issues that we fight for, what we, what we focus on. I do serve on five separate committees that also deal with regulatory issues. And so for all my business students out there, um, uh, let me know if you ever want to talk about regulation or the Department of Business and Professional Regulations. You know, we've been champions of small business issues here locally, helping small businesses get their licenses to open, helping folks who are changing career paths be able to access both their unemployment benefits and uh, um, licensing opportunities to enter a new field. And so as the ranking member of the regulatory and reform subcommittee and Ways and Means, we focus on a lot of the economic issues, which I I don't think Democrats talk about enough. And so I love going to the weeds of how do we make entrepreneurship easier for people? How do we reduce that access point so more everyday people can take risk and you know, become the next uh, CEO of a, of a startup. Yeah. And so really, really care about a fair shake, every yeah. type of economic uh, experience being one that folks have access to. How, how are all those priorities developed? In other words, are those specifically Representative Escamani's? Are those the Democratic Party in Florida? That's a great question. Yeah. I So, you know what? I don't really think it's that partisan. So I will say that there are values that motivate me to care about different issues. So, you know, I care deeply about family values in the sense that I want to make sure that families can be healthy and strong. I want to make sure that we we keep families together as much as we can. Um, And I care about, you know, families being able to navigate challenging circumstances and express bodily autonomy. I mean, I think you should be able to plan your families. And so I'm, I'm a very strong supporter of reproductive rights and opening up access to sexual health education um, preventing efforts to ban abortion. I also care a lot about LGBTQ plus equality. I think you should love who you want to love and be your authentic self. Um, and so there, those are values that I have that then inspire me to also care about affordable housing because a family cannot be healthy or strong if you don't have a home over your, your head. In fact, I look back at my childhood, the only fights my parents ever had was about money. Sure. Money was always a stressor for us. And that can really hurt a family and lead to separation, lead to um, uh, seeking some sort of support in ways that are potentially criminal, that can lead to incarceration. And so really important that uh, we lead with our values. And so I, I would say most of, our, most of our priorities on policy and issues doesn't come from a place of partisanship. It really comes from our lived experiences. And then listening to our district, you know, I knew when I first ran for office that arts and culture funding was going to be very important to us. We have obviously here in Winter Park, incredible arts and culture organizations. But then we have Lock Haven Park, you know, a few miles and now the Performing Arts Center. So I knew this community embraced arts and culture and that would be very important to us. Um, just like 
the affordable housing crisis is important. It's like water quality is important. And so you also let, you have to create a space where the public sets your agenda. And I'll tell you, a lot of focus goes towards the most controversial issues, you know, like Governor DeSantis's latest COVID-19 policy or um, things like reproductive rights or protecting our trans kids. And those are really important issues and we fight on them unapologetically. But I will say those those happy cases we have are really, really dry, (laughs) you know, like getting a, a, a stop sign somewhere or filling in a pothole. Or I got a tweet last night about. Uh, an over full dumpster in Orlando that that is attracting critters and people want it to be cleaned. So we also have those you know micro issues every single day, and we want to deliver results on those fronts as well. Because in the, the day, uh, your crisis is my crisis. Doesn't matter how big or small I think it is, it's still an issue that we have to address and try to solve. But how do you how do you how do you win? I mean, I know that's that's not the right term, but how do you get <laughs> something done there, particularly yeah. being in a minority party? Yeah, party? it's it's tough. So, so two there's two thoughts to this. One is you you got to use your bully pulpit, and so I cannot always control what happens in the chamber, but I can help inspire what happens outside the chamber. I can help mobilize people to come out to Tallahassee. I can help uh, inform folks. You know, I did a, a TikTok uh, last week about Florida Power and Light, and their corruption and their infiltration of elections through different ghost candidates and right. and fake uh, dark money groups. That TikTok had over 50,000 views. And to be clear, I am not a TikTok expert. Like <laughs> most of my videos don't even hit a thousand views. This one just like took off. Right. And so I think there is a public desire, you know, to get plugged into the process. But we as public officials and as leaders, you know, make that easier for people. Um, and so really, really important to engage with the public because in the day, my my voice might be not enough, but if there's fifty thousand views and right. you know twenty thousand people who care about this issue, we might actually be able to get some motion on it. Um, but the other side of this coin is working across the aisle, and I tell folks all the time, you have to build bridges where you can, while still not being afraid to hold people accountable when you must. And I am very intentional in not treating an individual as as like one one issue. At the end of the day, there's going to be colleagues and we agree on a lot and we disagree on some serious issues. And so I try really hard to always lead with dignity, to be respectful. Um, I don't uh, you know, make broad statements about a political party. If, if I have an issue with a specific individual, I'm very clear in aiming that. I don't just kind of go after what's trending on the Internet or um, you know, try to be sensational. I, right. I try to create calm. And I, and I think that folks really respect that about us and and it also allows us to, you know, find common ground. Many times when Republicans are pulling over and said, I agree with you on this. Yeah. And that's a moment to say, all right, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. right. And so so we really also strive for those moments. We can find them while also never sacrificing our values along the way. Yeah. So t- share with our audience what's 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 working, what's good in Tallahassee, <laughs> right? Because if you listen to the news, if you follow certain people on social oh, media, Sam. like you think <laughs> You think that nothing is good and nothing is working. There's zero collaboration. Is there some? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. So there is some. Absolutely. You know, Tallahassee is not as partisan as as Congress, as Washington, D.C., but unfortunately it's becoming more like it. I think there's been a lot of nationalization <clears throat> in the state legislature where whatever is happening at a federal level, it's mimicked at a state level. Like my my three past sessions, we've we've had issues that 
are completely grounded in boogeyman politics. Right. Like, let's create a fake problem. Let's create a lot of, you know, drama around this fake problem. Then we're going to solve this fake problem. So all of a sudden, we're the heroes. And meanwhile, the issues I already talked about don't get resolved. And so that's been frustrating because it, it does, it, it, A, it takes a lot of time out of session to have these debates. But then you're, you're hurting people. You know, the, the fact that we've went after trans kids in the legislature, that protesting was made more difficult, the censorship of higher ed and academic spaces, um, you know, all the way to um, election suppression. You know, these are issues that were not real problems to solve. So not only are they are distraction, but their passage does have negative implications. We're already seeing that impact in different ways. And so that's frustrating. And, and unfortunately, that's where it gets a lot of airtime, too. Sure. I think where I've been able to find moments where things can work. So, so I mentioned corporate taxes. I'm very big on, on closing those loopholes. And I've been able to find common ground with some of my more conservative members over trying to set a more even playing field for every business to succeed. And so, uh, you know, sometimes it's it means using their language. So I'll talk about crony capitalism, which, you know, speaks to the fact that there are corporations who have a much more influence in the legislative process compared to small businesses and other individuals. And, you know, when, I, when I'm able, I can connect with folks who are much more right-leaning than me on that same exact issue. They might approach it in a different way or say, say it in a different way, but it's the same concept. We want to hold corporations accountable and, and set an even playing field. So I've been able to find common ground. And in fact, last session, every year there's a corporate tax package. We were able to substantially reduce the tax breaks, substantially. And that was in large part to me working with the chairman of Ways and Means. And I remember him pulling me inside and saying, you're going to like the tax package now. And I was like, oh, let me see it, Mr. Chair. And, you know, dramatically reduced. And right. so- that's going to be another fight going into this session because uh, corporations have benefited from a, a, a temporary reduction in the corporate income tax rate that is set to go back up today or, or this year. And so there's already going to be a fight to maintain that tax cut that we'll be leading the charge against because it should get restored. It's already, it's already low, but they wanted it to be lower. Um, and so there's moments like that where you can find that common ground. One of the bills that we have filed would uh, require that education on the historical contributions of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community be integrated into K-12 schools has already gained a Republican co-sponsor, which I was so excited when that happened. It was represented Mike Beltran requested to be a co-sponsor. I actually texted him and I said, just make sure you're, you're, you're good on this. Like, this was a correct request. And, and so, you know, we have those moments where bills that I think um, are just good, thoughtful bills yeah. that you can find that support. Moving them is different. Getting bills moved is hard, um, especially in the minority. Right. But uh, we've had success in not only presenting bills, but in getting budgets, budget uh, items as well for local nonprofits. And it all comes back down to relationships yeah. and treasuring those relationships and not allowing the political rhetoric to hurt your ability to still work with that person. Yeah. Quite a game. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a political <laughs> nerd in so many ways. I'm a political science major and love had it. internship in D.C. When, when I was in college. No so way. I'm that's awesome. Just, I can still sit and watch C-SPAN. Like I'm one of those. Yes. I, I watch the Florida Channel all yeah, the time. Nerdy. Even before I ran for office, I would just have the Florida Channel on. Right. Like such a nerd. Hard to, hard to admit that in public, but um, <laughs> it's, it helps it helps in the process. So aside from, you know, my just deep admiration for you and your public service and sort of how you do it. Um, perhaps my most favorite thing about you is that you have developed a friendship 
at least so it appears on social media, <laughs> with Luke Skywalker. Ah! I mean, how does Anna Eskamani and Mark Hamill become connected uh, oh my on God. social media? I mean, I'm always surprised by that every single day. Anytime Mark Hamill <laughs> likes something that I tweet, I freak out. I have like a yeah. mini meltdown. So Mark and I totally connected on the internet. Like it was completely <laughs> on Twitter. I've never met Mr. Hamill in person, not yet anyways. Right. Um, and so we, we, we actually started following each other in the 2020 cycle because, <laughs> candidly, I, I think I was trying to get his attention. I mean, <laughs> I love Star Wars. Like, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Han Solo was my first crush when I was a kid. Like, just, I love it. I love the, 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 the hero arc. You know, I love the, the hope that it brings, the, the resilience, the friendship. And so that's always been really foundational to me. And I mentioned my mom passing away. When she passed away, tapping back into the things that I, I loved as a kid, whether it was Star Wars or the Beatles, that nostalgia for me was very foundational in helping me navigate the trauma, to be honest. So I, I also look at these pop culture icons as being a part of my healing process yeah. as well. And so in the, during the 2020 cycle, uh, I have a little Rebel Alliance cap and so I, I wore it during one of our canvases. And I think that was the first time he actually like tweeted at us and, right. you know, gave us like a, a gif of Luke Skywalker. And so I actually did not realize that he was following me until I think weeks later. Because, you know, I don't I don't follow all my Twitter right. notifications that religiously. And so when I saw it, I was like, no way. Like this, <laughs> like he's following so us. Cool. And so we actually ended up hosting a phone bank together for the Biden campaign. And he requested to the Democratic Party that I join him. I mean, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. He literally used the force <laughs> to bring us together. So then I find myself in a Zoom room with Mark Hamill to do a phone bank. And so you fast forward to 2021 and we're kicking off our election campaign. And I really wanted to do an in-person event. I had actually already booked a venue to do something in person, but then the summer surge happened and I just Felt like I could not safely facilitate or even or even advertise right. an event right now. So we shifted to virtual and people are just so sick and tired of virtual events. So I asked my team, what can we do to make this something more exciting and something that folks actually want to tap into? And we talked about inviting Mark Hamill. And honestly, I don't have it. I didn't have an email for him. I didn't have anything to reach out to him, but Twitter. Right. So I sent him a DM and he literally says on his Twitter profile that I don't read DM. So I was kind of, you know, it's kind of a stretch. Right. And I sent him a message and two days later I get a response from his daughter, Chelsea, who manages his DMs. Chelsea gives me an email <laughs> that they use for request. Mary Lou, his wife, manages the email. So I've got to meet whole through family. the whole family. It's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And yeah, and Mark agreed to, to be our, our special guest on our kickoff. And so you know, awesome. to be honest, Sam, I didn't even believe it would happen until it happened. Right. So right. Mark Campbell, like and he, Mark Campbell stayed the entire hour. He didn't just pop in and pop out. Like he stayed for our entire event. So all of our speakers you know, got it. to share that space with him. All of our guests got to watch what he watched. <laughs> and so it was very, very special for us. Yeah. And I actually sent him a package of Orlando swag as a nice. thank you. So hopefully we'll get to see him wear it nice. you know, in the future. And uh, he can show off some of his um, Orlando pride over in California. Very cool. That's a great story. <laughs> well, you're a great story. Uh, you're a great public servant. And uh, I know there are so many people at Rollins who 
know you, can reach out to you, can Always. connect w- with you and, and have you uh, help and support them. So can't thank you enough for what you're doing. We'll see you next week in Tallahassee uh, to learn more about uh, Representative Eskamani and her work as a public servant. You can always check her out at Anna for, AnnaForFlorida.com. Perfect. AnnaForFlorida.com. Well, thanks for, uh, for being with us Thank today. you so much. And special shout out to Mickey Meyer. I don't You're know if she's here. listening, but I adore Mickey and have known her for years. Mm-hmm. And she just does such amazing work there at Rollins alongside all the faculty and staff and administration. So thanks for what y'all do. And Hope to see you in Tallahassee. We will see you there for sure. Thanks to Dalal, our awesome uh, student who's uh, operating our board and uh, keeping us on the air and helping us get this show uploaded to our podcast, uh, Rollins Around Town. So uh, keep updated on that. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Rollins Around Town and, of course, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. So with that, uh, we thank you for tuning in and wish you a great day.